Recently, we were at an amazing event in London. We were invited to it. Wasn't sure what it's going to be like, but it was an event about flavour and taste. We found out that 70 to 90% of all your taste is in your mouth and much of it comes via a retral nasal pathway. Fancy way of saying you eat food, the food comes into your mouth. As soon as you crush it, the aromas come up your retral nasal pathway. That's the back door up to your nose where you hit it and poof. And a great way to experience this is put a jelly in your mouth, close your nose and eat it. And as you eat it, there will be no flavour. You'll be chewing it going, there's nothing in this. And as soon as you release your nose, the aroma comes straight up and you're like, <gasps> strawberry, wow! The event was sponsored by AirUp, which is an incredible technology and innovation on water bottles, encouraging you to drink more water. It uses sense-based technology where you've got to, you simply put water in their bottles. You get pods. They have a full selection of different pods. My favorite flavor is cherry cola. Not Go surprising. Uh, and I put in sparkling water. I activate the pod. I drink it. And the water tastes like cherry cola. It's Can amazing. You use normal water? Use any type of water, whatever kind of water you want. Really. I think the great thing is, one, it gets you drinking more water. We did a podcast with Dr. Dana Cohen, uh, who was an expert in hydration. She said approximately 70-90% of people are dehydrated. Yeah, so it gets you to drink more water, particularly like I bought one for my mother-in-law. She found it very difficult to drink enough water. She loves the watermelon pods. I got her some watermelon pods. She activates them and she drinks loads of water now and really finds it great. So while we're checking out, we have a 10% discount code if you're interested in trying them out. The code is HAPPYPAIR10 on the AirUp website. Welcome to this week's podcast with the wonderful Dr. Eastkey Britton. She's amazing. She's seven times Irish women's surfing champion, international professional surfer. She's also a doctor of marine biology, author of three incredible books, All Related to the Sea. She really is an inspiring, and she's a mother of twins. So we talk about Blue Mind and how spending time in the sea. We talk about just how the sea is such an interconnected part of our life and how we, our relationship with the sea is how we relate to ourselves. We talk about the importance of ebb and flow of life. I thought that was one of my favourites. And also about getting into flow state. Yeah, we talk about surfing and obviously her experience there with being a female in a very male-dominated sport and cover so many different things about the importance of water and nature to our own well-being. There's loads of takeaways in this. She's an incredibly inspiring woman. You're going to love it. Without further ado, we give you the wonderful Eastkey Britain. Like, I guess, I guess, like, the bit which I'm, like, I, I admire everything you do. I really, really do. I love, your books are incredible. I started listening to Ebb and Flow this week on Audible and it's r- such a pleasant, like, it's, you write really, really well. You really do. Beautiful oh, writing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Um, but, but what you write about is, like, I, when I was re- listening to it earlier, I was thinking more about um, ancient Irish, you know, the silkies, you know, the, the famous yeah. the myth- mythological silkies that kind of, you know, they were like women of the sea that had, they were just part of the sea. It was almost like a hybrid between a seal and a woman. And it was a magical, you know, mythological I don't know what to, what word to call it, but a, a creature anyway, uh, he, he, some kind of form. And I was thinking like almost, are you from a lineage of silkies? Because you're so, like the water seems to be such a kind of, you know, it seems like your life force. Obviously it is for all of us, but you particularly have this incredible connection with water. Yeah, it's kind of, it's definitely rare. I mean, it's in the title, isn't it, of the, the first book I wrote, Salt Water in the Blood, but that was, you know, the, literally what it's like in our family. I've been born into this, um, way of life that had this ocean connection from the very beginning and it's kind of getting passed on intergenerationally like you know and it's interesting what you say about about the selkie i've written a bit about that actually in the book around our was that my how much my identity has been shaped and formed by the ocean and then as a kind of as a researcher in the area of blue health looking at how that the power of this really watery planet especially the ocean to kind of how much it's shaped and formed 
uh, all of us as humans in terms of our biology and our evolution and then even our societies and, and in particular in Ireland, you know, we can't, there's no getting away from it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, an island. Yeah, really? uh, like recently we've been kind of come to the idea that um, like we are part of nature, like humans were part of nature and there's kind of almost like a mirroring effect as nature kind of degrades, like our cultures degrade and our health degrades and, you know, water, the, the oceans being a part of nature, you know, you being you being a marine biologist and spending so much time studying water and how water is, how do you kind of see the link between, you know, as our as our coral reefs, as, you know, um, fish stocks, as oceans seem to become more polluted? How do you see the impacts on us as humans and our own nature, us being 90 percent seawater, 80 percent sea, you know, salt water, not seawater? Yeah, it's just for me, I find it, it really um, enhances that story of the interconnectedness of all things, which um, might seem a bit out there as, as a concept for some people, but it's just what, exactly what you're saying really highlights that. So that this, uh, we're increasingly becoming aware of how we can't be well if our environment, if we don't live in a healthy environment, if our water isn't in good quality and and that's, as you rightly say, because we are bodies of water, you know, and all that, I just find it fascinating too, when you think about the water and the planet and how it's just continuously cycling through everything, all life, through all time. Uh, so it's this amazing archive of like the history of the planet, um, our human history, um, and it's also cycling through our bodies continually. Um, so, you know, that in itself speaks to this kind of... Um, yeah, there's there's one writer whose work I really love. She she writes a lot on our relationship with water as well, Estrada Nimanis from Australia. She calls it this global hydro commons, um, and it, and that we're all these yeah these bodies of water. And and I love that notion. Then when I immerse myself in a body of water, <laughs> it's just like coming into contact with another body of water. Yeah, and getting getting to know it. Um, and so a lot of the I suppose the more like recent science in the area is really, really only, I suppose, invalidating and supporting that more ancient knowing. I think that's always been there of that kind of the sacredness and, and uh, power of water to heal, water as medicine and how it's alive, um, especially when we think about the ocean in, in these times. Um, another way of thinking about it is... You know, a question I often get asked is, I obviously have this real bias towards the ocean and I have it on my doorstep, which I'm so fortunate. But for so many people, they don't have that or they're in a city or they feel distance from it. And just as a human on the planet, wherever we are, even for breathing, we're connected to the ocean. So something I never learned at school was that 60% of the oxygen in the atmosphere comes from the ocean. And so that every time we kind of take a conscious breath, or they say every second breath, um, so the, in that way, I like to think of it as like the ocean is breathing for us. Like it's literally our life support system. Wow. Ooh. It's kind of, it's trippy to start thinking like that. Like, cause I yeah. heard you, heard you previously <laughs> even talk about like that water that might've passed through a T-Rex could be passing <laughs> through me now. And it's kind of like, as my mind goes into that, it's like, wow, it's like looking at oxygen as this living energy and water as this living energy and my mind struggles to catch hold of it almost like the same way they say that like you know you've breath breathed the same breath that einstein or any you know any previous person on the planet yeah Yeah. I, i wonder you mentioned there like water is living and i wonder if we could tap into that because that's something that you know like 
I personally believe rocks are living. I believe a lot of these things that we see as animate objects that are naturally intrinsically a part of nature. And I, at some atomic level, they're alive, I believe. And maybe that's strange. Maybe that's a little weird. But the concept of water being living, I wonder, could you expand yeah. on that? Because that's something that to some people might seem strange. Because there's tap yeah. water, there's sea water, there's lake water, there's river water, uh-huh. there's yeah. water. You know, but it's all comes under the umbrella term of water. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and then for me, writing like the my last book, Ebb and Flow, was fascinating because I was like, I started out thinking, yeah, I know water. I've got the, I'm in it, my, you know, I've been in it my whole life. But I have a real affinity, obviously, with salt water in the ocean. And then I realized, wow, there's, there's um, so little I actually know, which is kind of crazy. Uh, about water, it being foundational for all life. And so it was really fun to kind of unpack water in in all its forms in that regard. And yeah, water is living. I mean, it's because it is the source of all life. Um, and it's a real fundamental like uh, belief in, you know, indigenous cultures that water uh, water is alive. It has this life force. And, you know, very recently, we've only just kind of cop that well yeah the soil is alive and trees are alive and they're all speaking to each other and there's this whole mycelium network of that this web of like communication going on that we're just beginning to uh well we're not even beginning to understand but we've just kind of realized and the same then is uh true of water and the science is starting to evidence that as well you know water is such a unique molecular structure that it's really responsive to uh, anything and everything it comes into contact with is changed by it. So when we go into the water where, you know, the science and work I do is looking at the impact of water on us in terms of our health and well-being. So how it changes us physiologically and psychologically. Um, and then, you know, I love just then flipping that on its head and actually looking, there's this interaction happening. And when we enter a body of water or come into contact with it, it changes as well in response to us. Um, so the same way they say now, when you walk into a forest, the trees are, are, have this awareness, um, I can't bear on some level that we're there <laughs> and, and it's not woo woo. I mean, it's, it's the, the science is there too. And, but it's something also that we've, we've always known, but then have lost that knowledge. I think almost like we, at one stage, we intrinsically knew it without actually have to having to like intellectually know it. We kind of felt it. We were it. We were much more in contact. And I wonder with like ecosystems, the most resilient ecosystem is the most biodiverse. And mm-hmm. the more biodiverse, the more kind of natural intelligence there is in a space and the more resilient and alive and vibrant and creative it is. And I wonder about water, because water is living. Like if I get water from an aquifer, typically it's going to be more nutrient dense. It's going to be more exposed to more living organisms. It's going to be more alive. Minerals. If I get water from, we were in London yesterday, London water that's been put through XYZ treatment plant, it comes out, it's a lot less dead. I wonder... Or it's a lot less... It's alive. a lot less alive, sorry. It's a lot less dead. It's a lot less alive. And I wonder with water, yeah. does water, is it measured in the same way as in kind of its biodiversity or its... Oh. Are there ways to measure the, the vibrancy within it or the energy? You know, because ultimately we live in an energetic universe and you can look under different means of looking at energetic frequencies within things. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, do, like I remember Masaru Emoto, he did different studies on water and when you talk to water, it, you know, if you speak nicely to water, it can show certain things. Whereas if you say... <laughs> I hate you to water the crystals when you look at it under a microscope show that they're kind of cracked and unhappy, almost implying that, you know, water has emotion or has feelings in it. And um, or it's affected by our emotions. Uh, that's a ramble. There's no actual particular question. 
But it's you, you no, have... no, no, I, I think I, yeah, well, let's riff on it for a little bit then. Cause I, I, what's coming up for me in response to that is that, yeah, definitely with water, because of its composition being so unique and its molecular structure, it, it does, uh, it is altered by vibration. So of sound, for example, or movement, um, that alter then how, how it would appear, say under a microscope. So there's certainly that. And then, yeah, in terms of the vitality of water, like everything kind of affects it. So for example, with they say, you know, the colder water is, um, the more dense it is and the more vitality it has. So species have evolved in response, for example, to the temperature of water. Um, I take, you know, I think a really good example, say, would be the Atlantic salmon here in Ireland and the timing of their, their migration and when they, you know, the temperature they need rivers to be at in order to optimize their ability to actually like jump waterfalls back to their kind of their birthing, birthing waters, as it were. Which in itself is is kind of remarkable, and I hadn't realized that. So, um, temperature kind of just of the water can finally sinks and tunes the you know the orchestration of all life. And there's other amazing projects that, in terms of trying to capture the aliveness or vitality of water, is also the sound it it um, it holds. So when you think of rivers, uh, actually like beneath the surface, there's a whole kind of um, composition, like a musical composition that's particular to that river, that habitat, the species that live in it. Um, so you can actually record this sort of fusion of all these different sounds. And then if you're like a really good, you know, aquatic ecologist, you'd probably be able to identify the species like you would birds. And so I did, I never thought of that before either. But of course, why why wouldn't rivers have their own song? Um, and that's a, an indicator. They're using that as a way to obviously monitor the, as a bioindicator, the health of the river based on the the music the sounds the song it makes and then you have rivers the most that are the most polluted uh, or that have been dammed they're no longer free flowing and obviously then the sound gets far less and there's rivers then that go totally silent um, and so there's a river listening project is what just one initiative of like ways to engage communities of like to bring back the the, the song of, of their river you know uh which i just i just love that and even what you're saying then about the whole ecology and the inter going back to the interconnectedness i think it's you know the knowledge we had around that in ireland in particular was is held still is held in our mythology and i have a great affinity obviously with the salmon being called eski <laughs> You know, even the Irish word for fish and then being named after the wave on the west coast of Ireland. But there, yeah, the Eski River comes out, which is an important salmon river um, and helps form the wave at the river mouth, which is one of the first waves I surfed over rocks. So the, wow. I, I was really very attached to the, the story of the salmon of knowledge from very early on. It's a beautiful <laughs> story, the salmon yeah. of knowledge. Like it's... But to kind of I suppose, to reflect on it now, what it says to me is that it was this kind of reminder of a time when I suppose our ancestors understood, I paid close enough attention to that more than human world and to other species, um, that they understood that um, the importance um, of listening to that. And in the Salmon of Knowledge, it really tells that story of the connection, the inter ecological interdependencies between the salmon, the ocean, the river, and the trees. Um, and we now know, just with very more like very recent science, that they're finding, you know, that because of the salmon and coming from the ocean and migrating up up into rivers, where there are still healthy ecosystems intact, and so largely no longer in Europe, but certainly in say the Pacific Northwest um, part of the 
Canada and the United States, they still ha- are able to find in the trees and often quite far inland um, a particular um, type of nitrogen that's only found in the ocean, uh, isotope 15. Uh, so it grow it within, within the, the trees that are growing and it kind of accelerates the growth of trees. Um, so it's literally the trees have the ocean in them because of the salmon carrying that with them and uh, yeah, I just find that amazing. That's pretty <laughs> trippy. I yeah, love that. Yeah. And it goes it goes the other way. The ocean needs really healthy trees and coastal forests uh, because of the, again, the exchange there of the minerals that you only get from, say, the leaf litter that goes into the rivers that then supports the, you know, the, the growth of in coastal habitats, like important nursery grounds uh, for fish and so and in Ireland, because we've lost all of our forests, I can only imagine what our coastal uh, waters and habitats must have been like. <laughs> wow. That they must have been a lot more thriving and much more plentiful. Yeah, yeah. And and even I'm trained more in marine science and I think it's a real um, mistake to try to, you know, to silo these things too much. So I, I think in a lot of the sort of the ocean work we do, it is the story of our life. And we also need to be looking at uh, what's happening, primarily what's happening on land uh, that has the greatest impact actually on the ocean. Mm, yeah, because it must be interesting for you now having having ch- young kids and kind of going over your lifetime, you know, marine ecosystems around Ireland and globally have changed quite dramatically. Like what do you kind of see or what are your, like what, I know you're, you're, you're like, you have a deep care for the sea and the ocean and the ecosystems and biodiversity within them. And what have you kind of seen in your lifetime and what do you kind of worry for your kids going forward? Yeah, it's, I guess I'm shocked at the, just the acceleration of the change, like how rapid it is. Like one human lifetime is absolutely nothing in the scale of, you know, the earth's history of 4 billion years. So the fact that we're, you know, creating what should be happening in sort of geological time is happening in in just like one generation um, is is pretty scary. I think the ocean, it holds so much of the the answers and solutions we need and the crisis we face with, with, in particular with the climate crisis and biodiversity loss, but it's also suffering the most because it's really acting as our buffer to uh, a lot of the the changes that are happening. And so even just to see things like um, it, the shift in a few, there's a few different layers of looking at it. I think growing up as a, as a surfer, especially like pre-technology and smartphones and surf forecasting apps, so you're having to learn to actually read weather patterns over time and, you know, put out the, the low pressure chart out of the back of the newspaper uh, and put it in a scrapbook um, that me and my dad used to keep, you know, and we'd write in then what the surf was like when the swell arrived a few days later, but I don't think they don't even print that anymore in the newspaper. Um, or the the stoke of getting to stay up as a kid, like past nine o'clock to see like the full weather report where they'd also show the the storms and the low pressure chart so we could predict the swell. <laughs> in wow. That was just normal. But um, I guess my point being then those weather patterns, you kind of just accumulate a lifetime of observational knowledge because you're so immersed in, in the sea in a way most people aren't. Um, and that I suppose, you know, other people in livelihoods that are tied to it, like um, people with fish and so on would certainly be aware. But that's just changing. It's so unpredictable now. Uh, I'm trying to understand what the 
what this, you know, even this, the patterns of surf, um, how fast the storms are moving, the frequency of them, the intensity, um, and then of course the water temperature being the other massive change, and then that affecting the whole um, the species that we're seeing or not seeing, and even like beachcombing is one of my favorite things to do to kind of like ground myself. Um, and now, like when I grew up as a kid, there, I just never really saw any plastics. I, you know, I that I can recall, and and now it's just totally commonplace. It's it's going to be so normal when my kids are doing it that it's just, of course, there's going to be um, microplastics. Um, find oh. sea glass. Do you find sea glass where you are? That was a hobby me and my kids used to do. Yeah, we'd go come yeah. to the beach for sea glass, and we'd find green green ones and light green ones, blue one was and brown ones. One. But a blue one was always blue really was, special. Oh when you get a blue yeah. one. And then you fill like the bottles up with them at home. To the, yeah. yeah, the mermaid's tears, they're sometimes called. Oh, <laughs> nice. I like that. But I'm in, I'm in the mermaid's purse, like finding a, a shark egg case was oh, always yeah, that's that's cool. a good one too. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good special one. Wow, pretty cool. Yeah, nice. yeah there was there was even a dad showed me an article there recently, which was really like, it, I couldn't believe it. Like he was saying that across in Newcastle in England, that there was recordings of showing that the sea temperature had gone up by 15 degrees. Like something crazy like that, where the sea temperature gone up so much that it was, um, there was all sorts of species, something that was going on. It was the first time that, like very close to Ireland where you're going, oh my God, the sea temperature, it was an article in the Guardian or whatnot. Um, I think yeah. was, I think that yeah. was the highest it had been in 150 years. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was it more accurately. Yeah. Um, I didn't do yeah. the best. Uh, um, whatever that paraphrasing is, not pulling out the sensational one line. But yeah, because I mean, if you think about the ocean now, like the volume of water we're talking about here, and to change its temperature, do you know when you run in a bath and you're trying to like get the temperature right? It, it can take quite a while. You know, it's too hot, and then it takes you to run the cold for ages before the temperature will shift. But I was just thinking about that with the ocean to alter the temperature of a body of water that big, even by one degree, is massive amount of input in terms of heat that it's absorbing. And so when I go back again, how the ocean breathes for us, so that oxygen is released by phytoplankton, which again, really depends on that mixing and exchange of cold and warm waters. Um, phytoplankton are like little baby fish. Micros they're microscopic plants that then the zooplankton feed on, which are like really teeny tiny, like the the main food source for all life in the in the ocean. Um, but yeah, so, and they're in, they're, yeah, they're in decline kind of across the board in the world's oceans. So the fact the thing that gives us oxygen to breathe on this planet is rapidly declining. I just don't know why there isn't more panic about that. But we have better Wi-Fi. We have much better Wi-Fi. No, sorry, I'm being cynical. David Flynn. It's yeah, unlike yeah. you, David. Okay, like we're, we're camping, we're waiting. Uh, I wonder, can we talk about blue health? Because I think that's something that's yeah. very relevant to that. And that's something that's kind of in one of your areas of expertise is just about how our relationship with water and how it can be healing, help our health, health our happiness. And obviously there's been a huge explosion. I know we've swam in the sea every day, you know, at sunrise for almost a decade. Um, and it's yeah. something that has really... It's very unifying, not just with nature, but with those that you swim with. It's and it's kind of there's been an explosion of it. I wonder if you could talk what what is blue health, and I wonder could we talk about it because I think that's something that's so relevant to anyone listening. Yeah, it's so it's just such an exciting area uh, to be in. So it's basically looking at um, essentially say the like the physical and mental health and well being benefits of being in, on, or near water. So the, the effect water has on us. Um, 
And then, you know, and that differs depending on obviously who you are in your own life history or your memory of, of water, whether that you will know, amplify the benefit or not. But regardless, whether even if you're, you're not conscious of the connection with water, um, it already starts to have an effect on us as soon as we come into contact with us. So one really basic example um, of that kind of innate human connection with water would be even when you splash your face with cold water in the morning, uh, never mind that like the you know diehard cold water swimmers uh, would get a far a far greater dose. But as soon as water comes into contact with our face, um, and that especially that part there, just like below our our eyes, there's these like receptors in the body that kind of kick um, kind of kick on our mammalian dive response. So that's you know a response we share with all mammals, especially marine mammals. It's really heightened in. It's what allows them to prepare to hold for for big breath holds to spend time underwater. Um, and so we still have that as a sort of evolutionary kind of biomarker in our bodies. And it's a, you'll see it most pronounced. I like, went in in kids, you know, for the first like babies in the first six months, it's just automatic. Uh, they hold their breath naturally underwater. Um, and so it's quite fascinating to see that with my two. I was like, really? Are you sure? Uh, but yes, thankfully. <laughs> um, and that's amazing. So that creates then a whole physiological cascade of things that change in our body, like the, you know, pre- to prepare the body to hold its breath in water, like the slowing of the heart rate, um, our blood flow changes. Um, and it's, it's so it's something that I suppose they're free divers, for example, would intentionally tap into and train that reflex even more. Um, but it's it's innate in all of us. And that's part of the therapeutic benefit, too, of that kind of um, the calming effect it can have. And then on almost kind of on the flip side of that is that especially in Ireland, a lot of the time getting into the like all the time getting into the water, it's going to be cold, it's colder than our body temperature. So there's going to be that um it probably initially be shock factor even, but it, the fact that it's a lot of the therapeutic benefit, the evidence is sort of supporting comes from the fact that we have to get over this kind of discomfort. Um, it's like a really, you know, that kind of mental challenge of like, ah, initially, like, it takes a lot of motivation sometimes to get in, especially year round into the water. Um, but with the more you do it, the body begins to also adapt, but it, it, build, it essentially builds this adaptive response or capacity in the body. Um, with this, I think the medical term is hormesis. Uh, so it essentially we begin to over time control stress response. So it gets reduced. Uh, and again, we, we feel that sense of um, calm can kick in more easily, but it has a wonderful spillover effect because it actually builds resilience for meeting then any kind of challenge after we come out of the water. Um, you tend to just be less stressed. And um, that's one of the reasons why I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I... when I think about the extreme conditions I put myself through, uh, surfing and whatnot, but it's like, oh, okay. And why we're seeing such a rise in things like ocean therapy and, and surf therapy and, and of course, cold water swimming. Yeah, I I I think there's something almost kicks in. It's almost like a survival mechanism, particularly mm-hmm. in cold waters. When you swim in cold water, you go in, you know, you've got to face discomfort. You've got to overcome the poor me. I don't feel like this. This, oh, why do I do this? This is stupid. Like we got uh, my body 10 years later doing this every day at sunrise. This morning, even down there, I'm like, it's 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 raining on me. I'm walking in the road. I go, this is stupid. What? Oh my, you know, whatever oh, yeah, the, the usual yeah. kind of voice goes on. And then you go in and you're like, oh, like it's almost like once you come out, like a euphoric little kid comes out that just feels 
Like it feels more resilient. It feels like that there's some kind of survival mechanism kicks in. Like, like, and as I remember chatting to Susan, Susan Steele, Dr. Susan Steele, she's another marine biologist that is a massive Damn. lover of the sea. And she talks about that the salt water, like it cleans it biologically, like it actually scientifically will clean your pores. Your no, you will be able to breathe better. You'll be able to see better. You will be able to hear better. And there's scientific evidence for this. It doesn't just feel like that. And then whatever way I mm-hmm. feel like it energetically washes me, which sounds very woo-woo, but I go in there a kind of like, you know, I'm carrying a few problems. I'm a bit kind of, you know, my spine's a little bit curved. And then I come out feeling like, oh my God, I love this version of me. Woohoo! And I just, like it, I don't know what it does, but there's some kind of energetically cleaning. That's the best way I can describe it. I love that. And you're actually exactly right. So there's a few few things to like to build on that um, of why it feels like I love the way you put it. Um, but yeah, so it's, I think when we're, in water as well, it sort of promotes this kind of um, what it encourages to us to move our bodies. But it's such a kind of sensory um, experience, you know. It's so, um, I guess, so especially with immersion in water, because like it touches all of our body, um, and so help really helps that kind of to create that embodied experience. So we move out of our heads and into our bodies, which helps us feel more present. And then there's something about, say, with swimming, for example. Um, because it's kind of, it's rhythmic and you have to have that sort of increased sort of sensory attunement in the water, uh, especially to your breath, um, has all kinds of kind of benefits as well. Um, and it's just, it's such a deeply kind of psychosomatic experience. So we're like, we're feeling and interpreting all these sounds and sensations in and through the body in a way that's just not the same when we're on land or in our everyday life. Um, so I think that's really part of the benefit too. And and it, it really kind of was revealed in a study we did with uh, a wonderful charity here in Donegal called Liquid Therapy. And it was with a, a group of young people with um, um, autism and just the things and we were looking at their, you know, their experience of the sea and surfing and, and how it changed their relationship with the sea over time. But that sensory stimulation of like breaking waves and even the pressure of salt water on the body um, were all just things that were really beneficial. Um, and of course, then being in salt water, even in a wetsuit, you have that buoyancy that comes, that sense of freedom and weightlessness, which can be um, really beneficial as well. And I love the, I just don't think this could be an accident, the fact that amniotic fluid um, is the same density as seawater. So that moment when we probably felt safest in our lives in in the waters of our mother's womb, when we go back to say the sea and allow ourselves to kind of relax um, and feel held, there must be like a wonderful sense of um, belonging that kicks in. Like I'm sure like the body holds that memory, right? Um, so yeah, all those kinds of things. And like Susan Steele was saying now, there's there's scientists in the University of Plymouth at the Marine Lab there who are lo- looking at the um, impact of uh, sea spray aerosols. So when we, you know, breathe in the sea air and it feels so fresh and revitalizing. And the fact that actually, you know, and we're looking at say Victorian times, they would have prescribed people to like go to the seaside for respite and recovery from various illnesses uh, without knowing that now actually the science does support that when you breathe in these aerosols, they have an anti-inflammatory response on in the cells' bodies. Um, 
but it's also I also find it fascinating that in a sea spray aerosol, like it has this really kind of complex chemical composition that's totally unique to that body of water or that part of the sea because it carries essentially carries the signature of all life in the sea. Sort of gets like uh, so you get like a microdose of of um, yeah all life in the sea. So talking about interconnectedness, <laughs> yeah, well, and I think it challenges. I find what I love about it for me, it challenges my notion of myself as a separate entity moving about in the world. And I think I'm sure part of, it's part of that feeling that we all get, isn't it? Of why I think why we're drawn to water, to immersion is that feeling of it's connectedness, but it's also more than that. It's that kind of why we, a lot of people will describe it even as a sense of oneness um, in that more spiritual way. But that's exactly kind of what's happening. We're realizing that our human bodies are actually more than human. <laughs> Um, that we ca- carry an imprint of all these places that we go to, especially in, in the water. Maybe in water, because water is a liquid and we feel like we're being held and it's so much easier to see the connection. You can see, oh, well, water goes from here and there's water in Wales and it's the same water. Whereas in the atmosphere, like there is oxygen everywhere and there's gases everywhere. But because we can't see, like it isn't this, it's so less, so much less dense than water. Like because water is dense, oh, we are all connected. I am unconnected to the fish. And oh my God, there's a sea, you know, like there's that sense of connection because we're all at one in this one thing. Whereas the atmosphere, which which we spend our day on land, it's less dense. So we don't necessarily feel that same. It's it's still yeah. there. It's absolutely there in every sense, but it's not as easy to, to see or to feel or whatnot. And I think it's, it goes back to like water and in particular the ocean being the most sort of biodiverse of all environments. So it actually does hold... I think in a liter of seawater, there's like a billion microbes, um, which might sound like, ooh, but you know, most of our body is made up of actually non-human microbes that make up our microbiome. And a friend of mine, a Hawaiian surfer scientist, Cliff Capono, um, he's a, a biochemist and did this wonderful um project called the Surfer Biome Project, which is really smart because he loves to surf uh, amazing waves all around the world. So this was a project, research project he got funded to do just that and meet all these surf communities and then test their, you know, their microbiome for a particular type of, I suppose, as he called it, uh, ocean fingerprint. Like his finding was essentially that the ocean does leave its fingerprint on us and alters our microbiome to the extent that he could tell someone who goes in the ocean regularly and someone who doesn't. And you can also then begin to tell, you know, which which part of the ocean do you regularly immerse yourself in uh, or, or, you know, the difference basically between different water bodies. But essentially, probably our microbiome for people who are in the sea all the time, it'd probably be um, closer to that of like seals than wow. other humans that we're that live in our community, but that don't go in the water. Uh, so yeah, it's it's kind of remarkable. That's amazing to think of that. It really is. And and to go back to your selkie myth, there's yeah, so, actually something to that. <laughs> yeah, that we become our environment. We are a direct product mm-hmm. of our environment in every sense. And during it was two days ago, we'd always want to we hadn't like friends of swam in Hampstead Heath. I'm sure you've heard of it. it's a pond. There's ponds yeah. in in the big big park in the middle of London. And we went and swam on it there on Wednesday morning and I like I hadn't been in a, a lake or a pond in so long like just because we swim in the sea and I'm so used to that body of water but it was just such a different experience being in an in a freshwater pond where there's all sorts of trees and such like it, it kind of just felt it smelled so different it felt <laughs> so it smelt di- of, of like leaves and it smelt of, of leaves and oak leaves around it and it just felt so different to the sea it was like oh my god like 
this is such a different environment for biologically to be exposed to. Like your microbes, your everything would be very different from swimming in the sea. They're very different environments. And like the same way, the mountains, the forest, it all sounds so basic. But I think most of us nowadays spend so much time in urban environments and like us indoors sitting in, you know, chemically made stuff. But when you're out in these environments, you become part of it. We become one with it. Like we are, you know, just are interconnected with all of it, all of the natural world. Yeah, absolutely. And it's why like spending more time outside actually do, you know, rebalances our, our whole, um, you know, bodily system. It's, it's just, you know, it's no surprise why we would feel better. <laughs> but increasingly, I think why we're not feeling so good is because we're more and more time, you know, less and less time spent outside and more and more time indoors. And it's what you say that Ham said, Heath, I had my... Uh, uh, UK book launch of Ebb and Flow like a month or two ago. It was in, in London at the Finisterre store. And I just, as soon as I landed, I hadn't been out of the country in like years, literally. I sort of felt like for me, a big adventure. But I just made a beeline for Hampstead Heath and the was <laughs> I was like, I need to be in water. I was overwhelmed, overstimulated by all the like the noise and the people and buildings it was hilarious and then it, that feeling of like the the novelty of being in the pond it was surreal but mm. it was still like I just needed the water even there uh, especially in London so yeah yeah it's interesting it, it feels more uh, soily in a pond or something like this you know it just feels really different to the sea you know maybe because the sea's a moving body of water it just you know I don't know it was yeah it was wonderful it was interesting in terms of blue health, for anyone listening to blue health, it's like spending time near a body of water will help calm us down, will help release more serotonin, oxytocin, reduce our cortisol, will generally increase our well-being. Isn't that kind of the general premise of blue health? Yeah, yeah, it is. And there's, I guess, a foundational sort of book on that would be the work of Wallace J. Nichols, a uh, marine biologist who wrote Blue Mind. So essentially looking at you know, why why is water the most psychologically restorative of all environments for humans and its effect in particular on our minds, um, well, on our entire bodies. But the evidence is just that, like that even looking at a, a body of water, um, because it holds our attention in a kind of more effortless way, a bit like how you're drawn into a fire and you're, you're looking at the, the flames, so anything that's really elemental like that. So water, but water has this kind of like constancy to it and you look, especially look out at the ocean, but it's also always like changing. So it's, it, it's, um, it has Enchanting. that kind of soft fascination is what the kind of the science, environmental health scientists or environmental psychologists would call it. Uh, but that's really like a, it really helps with our, that kind of brain fatigue and brain fog. We might feel far too much of <laughs> these days. Um, and then with the neuroscience, they're able to you know, do any studies where they look at your brain waves and it's like, if you sit and look at water, it's like your equivalent to sort of sitting and doing meditation. Um, but I mean, all of that also comes with the caveat that it de- it depends on the context, of course. So it depends on the the health of that water. So we know that the well-being benefits are dramatically enhanced the more biodiverse and uh, an environment is, and the species richness, um, the like a feeling of aliveness and health of a place, of course. Um, and then also it depends on your own life life story as well. And so a lot of my work is looking at. Um, there's a lot of exclusionary forces at play when, especially when it comes to accessing water bodies and the sea and the coast and the beach, um, and and a lot of water sports uh, can feel like um, it's not a place 
for a lot of people uh, or a lot of people mightn't identify with it or be able to access it. Um, and in particular for women, I was kind of staggered by the statistic when I was writing Ebb and Flow of the gender inequalities the world over when it comes to the ability to swim, you know, for adult women compared to men. So there's that inequality in every country in the world. And then it's as high as 85% in low income countries when it comes to women's ability to to swim and to be able to to participate in things that we're talking about that are so beneficial for our health. Um, and so it kind of feeds that narrative that the sea is a place uh, that's dangerous or risky and you shouldn't go to. Um, so it creates that sort of gendered um, division that I, you know, that's still there. Wow. And even like, we haven't talked about surfing at all, uh, but I just wondered even like you, you being, you know, the, the female personification of surfing in Ireland for a period, you know, you really are a very well-known Irish female surfer having been Irish champion lots and lots and lots of times. And really, I think the root of it, according to what I was reading, is it was your granny brought some surfboards to the hotel or something for guests to use. And then your dad and your dad's brothers started using them. And then obviously when you were born, you know, the love passed down the track, which was very, you know, as you said, like, you know, it was more common probably like surfing isn't, it probably has been around, you know, Hawaiian women and men. I think that was where it originated hundreds of years ago or whatnot. But it's kind of in the last hundred years, certainly in Ireland, it hasn't been a very prolific sport. It's only been in the last kind of, I don't know, maybe it's 30, 40 years. I'm sure it's been, people did it in more microclimates. But as the world's become more connected, like surfing has become a global sport. I think it's in the Olympics and it's, you know, it's really well established. And even in your career, like, um, have you seen much more women surfing now? Is it much more, or is it still a very male dominated sport? It's, well, in short, it's still very male dominated, but that's, you know, it takes time to undo 60 plus years in terms of modern surfing, if it being very much controlled in the domain of, of men, but it, in those positions of when it comes to the surf industry and the, the surfing brands and the companies and the magazines and all of that, um, everyone in those positions being, being, being a dude essentially, um, and and now the big shift is happening as you're seeing like massive changes um, compared to when I was competing through my teens and early 20s to a situation now where like the World Surfing League, the main sort of professional tour, global tour, um, the head of competition is a woman, Jessie Miley Dyer, who I actually used to compete with when we were teens on a on the pro junior tour uh, and did my first surf trip ever to Tahiti with her um, and sur- surf that crazy wave chopu. And so that there's a whole there's a whole shift happening. And then the WSL, the World Surfing League, also became the first, I think, professional sporting body to introduce um pay parity in their um in the, their professional tour for men and women just a few years ago. And so all of that is starting to um create a more of a cultural shift. Yeah, you know, it's all starting to add up now. Um, and so as a result, you're seeing 
a lot more women and girls do it. And also the in terms of like the performance level, because women are, you know, surprise, surprise, if you get given more opportunities, <laughs> uh, we will rise to the occasion. And that's what's happening now because they also not only do a pay party, but on the world tour, they surf these select waves around the world. Um, some of them are like, you know, like pipeline in Hawaii would be one of the most critical, dangerous waves in the world. Um, but the women have never been given a chance to to surf there. And so they've been excluded from that. And then they've just in the last two years introduced the women's event alongside the men. Um, and and sure enough, even after like even that short space of time, really seeing that the gap close in terms of performance. Uh, so it's really exciting. Yeah. Amazing. And then of course you have that visibility where there's equal um, visibility given uh, changes to everything as well. Great to see happening across the board, like, you know, with like when we were young, playing loads of sports, you never saw like, you know, the Irish women's rugby team playing or the Irish women's football team or then at the local soccer club, there was never really a girls team. And now, yeah, because even like, say, we're both fathers of daughters, not together, but we both have daughters and May's now 12 and Elsie's 12. And I remember bringing May down to football and it was a girls team. And I actually had to, and and this is total ignorance just because I'd never done it before. Um, I had to say to one of the coaches, like, does this work just the same as boys football? Like, I don't know, am I allowed shout am I allowed to hear how does it work you know and it was just because I had never been to a girls football match and yeah, I was getting absolute yeah. ignorance yeah you know? total ignorance but amazing to see and now that Ireland have qualified in the female uh, soccer world cup I see she's so excited we're going to go watch as many games as we can we're going to watch it on TV and it's like I'm so grateful she is female role models that are playing sport that are that are much greater than just being pretty people you know the way that they're actually celebrated for athletics for intelligence for just more than yeah anyway I'm really happy about that and I really admire oh, it's you so important yeah and I really yeah, admire I mean, you having the courage to go pursue surfing at a time in Ireland like I, I remember hearing a story that you used to go surf after school in winter and your mom would have to flash the headlights this is you on a beach on your own surfing flash the headlights going, time to come in easy time to come in easy like it's like you lunatic you courageous absolute heroine Silky. like I'm just incredible just have the courage to pursue it at a time when no one was doing it and it was strange and it was weird and you didn't really have Irish role models or community around you um, I just tip my hat off to you yeah yeah I have such <laughs> vivid memories of that even the how I managed to get out of my in order to maximize my time in the water with dwindling daylight in winter time, I tried on a, you know, wriggle out of my school uniform in the back of a car and get into a wetsuit in the back of a car. Um, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I did that. So that as soon as you arrive to the beach, you know, in that 10 minute car journey, I'd be able to just roll out of the car and literally straight into the and sea. Stuff and a then sandwich and, in your and yeah. And then of course I wouldn't leave it until it was so dark. Mum couldn't see me and was freaking out in the beach. And I'd be numb because the wetsuits were, you know, shockingly terrible compared to what they're like now. And uh, so I'd be frozen and mum would have to like try to peel, peel it off me. (laughs) The lips would be blue. Uh, Yeah, they definitely had a pull on me. Still does. Wow. And what's it like now? Like having, like now you've got two young kids and like, you know, your professional surfing career is kind of behind you. Like, what do you still like is is how you surf different or are you still drawn to surf or how is your relationship with Are you surfing? moving into longboards now? Or are cruising you on some longboards? Boards? Are you into family boards or is it, have you uh, taken your, your twins out yet or? Brilliant. Well, that's why I laugh because I, I become obsessed with just riding a twin fin. Um, 
Admittedly, I did that before I had twins, but it's it's quite a joke now that I only surf twin fins, um, being mother to twins. Yeah, everything changed. I think now on reflection, looking back, um, and with writing, say that my first book, Saltwater in the Blood, being very much about that journey I had with the ocean through surfing, but seeing how that relationship has always been evolving. Um, and so surfing always being the kind of the vehicle or medium for me to access that kind of relationship or connection with the ocean. Um, but to recognize that it's always been changing, like it's constant, but I'm interested that of course it changes throughout the life cycle, um, which often doesn't get talked about that much either, but it serves, it's, it's for me, it's a relationship that's met different needs for me at different times in my life. So, you know, through my teenage years, really needing that, like something to hold my channel, I suppose my focus and drive. And so why I was really drawn to like the competitions. And then I don't know what happened in my twenties, but it was just this obsession with needing to go to like the edge and the extreme of my limits, because I suppose that they're the real identity forming years and that, you know, in terms of self-exploration and trying to find ourselves in the world. So I was just trying to find that in the face of, you know, 30 foot waves. Um, and enabling travel. <laughs> and I'd imagine it enabled so much travel. Of course it did. It experienced the world. Yeah, But now I don't have that same need uh, for a self-revelation um, in huge waves off Mullockmore Headland. But since becoming a mum, it's totally changed. Um, physically, it took obviously a while to recover. But psychologically, it's like this rewiring in the brain that happens when you become a parent, right? And for me, it's like now I definitely go... I'm seeking the motivation is just that feeling of like pleasure and to be, to feel at home in my own body again and to be like alone <laughs> in the ocean, to have a moment of just, just tapping back into that joy of it and with absolutely no expectation to like perform or do anything. Uh, and ironically, I've had, although I come out now and even if it's only three foot and I've been surfing for less than an hour, I'm like shattered because I have my energy levels are <laughs> pushed to the max running after two little ones. But I've had the most amazing moments of flow of that kind of um, some of my real sort of like peak surfing experiences actually um, since becoming a mum, because I think I've let go of all of that, all the notion or all that. I just don't have that same kind of drive or push. And funnily enough, that kind of energy seems to lend itself well to um, the openness, I think, and presence that's required in order to enter a flow state, like, of, yeah, just not forcing things and just letting them happen. Um, so, yeah, there's there's more life lessons. I'm always learning from the option. <laughs> that's pretty amazing because it's like modern day culture. It's, you know, there's a huge paradigm of you force it, make it happen, you know, get out mm. there and you, you can hustle. You can hustle. And, and ultimately with water and with the ocean or the sea, and um, when surfing, you can only work with what you have. And yeah. like if you're wanting to do some amazing move, if you don't have the right wave, you can't do it. And ultimately, I, I think, and it was it was only when we were surfing recently, it was like, no wonder people who surf are so chilled because you're sitting out there waiting and waiting and, and waiting <laughs> and for, observing. for a wave that you think you're going to go for. And you burn out quickly. I remember we went out and we we're kind of like, I'm going I'm to do this. I'm gonna, you know, we had this kind of puppy dog energy. And after about half an hour, <laughs> I was exhausted from just failing, failing, failing again, chase another wave that wasn't big enough, chase another one that wasn't big enough. But ultimately, I think... Spending time like that, Better. it teaches you patience. It teaches you to, sure. as you say, the ebb and flow. It teaches you to kind of find that harmony or that balance between it. 
but also but also what you articulated there it reminds me of you know those stories of where the archer when the ar- archer is mm. shooting for a prize he can't see the target but when an archer is shooting for fun it's so easy you can hit the apple on someone's head all day long and it's the same way like now you're yeah. out surfing purely for the joy of it you've gone through this massive rite of passage and this massive period of transformation where in parenthood it's just so much surrender and so much kind of you know um, rounding the ego and polishing it and shaping it and surrender again and surrender again so when you're out there it doesn't (laughs) surprise me that when you're out in the water you're like you're just it's easy to plug easier to plug in and just connect with it yeah yeah so I'm really grateful for that you know initially I was a bit kind of troubled by the oh do I have I lost that um, you know, I just just don't have the same kind of pull to put myself in in high risk, dangerous situations or go off chasing big waves. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I've really just fulfilled that served a need for me at that point in my life. Um, yeah, and it's funny; it's not like a fear or confidence thing. It's just this. It's just not there. <laughs> You've done that, and and also then it's it forever changes you. And that you know, I'm not surfing. There is that you know responsibility. Of course, I'm not just surfing for myself anymore. And you talk about it, the rounding of the ego. Um, and I'm very conscious. I'm surfing now for like for the three of us. <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder. I'd love to talk about the ebb and flow of life because now we live in a culture where it's like go out there make it happen be productive as you can don't be a human being be a human doing you are defined by what you do and you achieve um, whereas I love that you talk about the ebb and flow like it's fair enough time to go out and pursue your dreams but also there's time naturally like if you look at the seasons of life or the seasons of even a, a year or the weather in an Irish day yeah yeah, yeah. There's, <laughs> there's there's everything there's the go out and pursue your dreams but then there's time where it's slower and actually to come down and actually reflect and look internal mm. and maybe feel a little sad after the excitement that you had there's a natural mm. ebb and flow but as soon as we kind of feel these feelings of down we're frightened we're not meant to feel this society tells us everything is awesome all the time you gotta be happy all mm. the time whereas I think um, I wonder if we could talk about this because I think this is something, a beautiful message that you talk about. Yeah, thanks. And yeah, the huge kind of motivation for writing uh, the book, Ebb and Flow. But, uh, you know, water is synonymous with flow. But I also thought, yeah, but there's, you know, it's really cyclical. Um, when you have the tidal flow, there's also the ebb. Um, and it, it's obviously just as important <laughs> as the flow. And when I was writing the book, I had some really fascinating conversations with other people on their experience of, of water and their connection with it. Uh, and then asking them about their understanding of both ebb and flow. And it kind of came up again and again, um, with, you know, various, I was talking to everyone from, um, athletes to artists, to activists in the space and scientists and, but the importance of, of Ed being this, uh, like experiencing that, um, those those low moments, the downtime, the in between, or or when like when nothing is happening, um, when you're actually just not feeling um, any kind of even spark, motivation, energy. The the importance of actually being with that in those that kind of those still spaces in between or I was talking to like a, a pro snowboarder um, Connor Ryan 
who spoke about the importance of, you know, obviously the snow isn't always there either. And he's he lives a very you know cyclical life in terms of the seasons. Um, and he said if you used to go around the world chasing an endless winter, it actually wouldn't offer the same kind of learning and fulfillment. And Ebb is really this kind of container that makes the flow possible. Like you really need to experience what it feels like even to feel empty before you can actually fill it up in, in kind of in that way but we yes we definitely live in a society that doesn't honor the you know if, if ebb is it represents the, like the rest part and then flow is the action um yeah we really don't honor uh or value uh ebb and rest um at all and then as a consequence you can see it play out in it, it being a real struggle then you know as a parent or or a new mom and you realize actually how essential rest is to, you know, parenting well or doing anything well or even just being yourself. Um, and then in, when we look to to nature and even our evolution as a species, it's all cyclical. I mean, uh, we would have been uh, so much more attuned to that for most of our human history. And it's only in the last, you know, if we were, you know, to reduce it to human history as an an hour long event. It's only in the last like second, split second that we've been disconnected from uh, our kind of having an awareness of the importance of cycles, um, of of the ebb and flow and living more attuned to it. Beautifully. You, you, you speak like a poet. <laughs> it's beautiful, it is. Uh, when you were saying that, it made me think more of like, you know, we will land this now very shortly, sorry. Um, but uh, like, you know, the traits which we deem masculine and the traits that mm. we deem feminine in our society, you know, and the masculine, you know, the male dominated world which we've lived in, which I've lived my whole life in, of do, go, achieve. And then there's the female ones are, the, somehow we've labeled female traits which are, you know, are rest, restore, relax. And this is typically the ebb. And then, the flow is are the more masculine traits, supposedly. And in a male dominated world, it's not surprising that, you know, we struggle with the ebb or as individuals, mm. we've culturally been programmed to ebb. You know, you do, you know, we need to be achieving and proving ourselves rather than, you know, the, the importance of that rest and restore and nurture rather than always oh, and always go. Absolutely. And the balancing of both those forces like within each of us and how, you know, and then I would, you know, have always operated in what are very male dominated, but also very masculine oriented kind of cultures within, you know, this world of sport and surfing and then within academia and science. <laughs> and it's very rare you get, say, like a research fund, you know, project funded where it's it built into the the project cycle of these moments of like, okay, here we're going to have our period for rest and reflection to see how we're... <laughs> Um, how we're on track, um, or you know, so. But it's it's so important. It's really vital. And unsurprisingly, I mean, it's something I I unpack a little bit in in the book Ebb and Flow as well. Of looking at how you know often like well nature and the earth and water in particular is often synonymous with the feminine, the sacred feminine, um, and seeing in in our society the kind of the the parallels between the oppression of nature that I kind of that power over extractive forces at play to like the tamed our wild waters um that tried to control water uh was uh, 
playing out also then in society in particular with the you know the oppression of women as well and so i just really see these things are not separate they're symptomatic of kind of the society that we that we live in that's very much about that power over um that creates a kind of traumatized society because we're taught how um not to connect with or listen to um our body the body of the earth, bodies of water. Um, and so then it just feeds that ongoing kind of separation um, that we feel from each other and, and the world around us. And I think the real like work and what drives me and what's at the center really of the heart of what I do and why I do it is like the, is ways to then begin to restore that, um, those lost connections um, and, and to really reconnect and deepen the connection with, um, ourselves, our own bodies, and and then the body of the earth itself. Like that's that's the work we need to do when we're facing into these really uncertain times. I believe. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, I feel like I could talk all day, but obviously you need to mind kids, and we need to go do anything. <laughs> <laughs> we need to go ever flow. Uh, so, East, your new book is out. It's called Ebb and Flow. You've two previous books. One is Salt Water and Fifty and Things. To, salt Water and Blood. Uh, and the other one was like Fifty Things to Do with the Sea. But with two hundred fifty the things to do. Do I think it was? Oh the yeah, the fifty things to do by the, yeah. I'm so glad I wrote that. But that was like before the the twins were. There was even a notion of them. Uh, and now I'm so grateful to my former self that I'm definitely going to be taking the book out this summer <laughs> um, and using using the activities in it. But really, yeah, it's it's actually, it's suitable kind of for everyone and anyone. Um, but it's just really very, a lot of very mindfulness-based practices to begin to wait different ways to learn how to read and listen and understand the ocean and then form that relationship with it in really playful ways that also tap into things like we've been talking about like blue health and blue mind and um but all all really accessible um and again i think the other quality of water that maybe we didn't touch on so much but is inherent is how much it lends itself to that creativity and play um, really uh, at the core of I know what you guys do and it's probably why you also get your water fix <laughs> every day but um, yeah it's, it's fascinating to how it really enhances that um, uh, and again those things being very underestimated and undervalued in our society but yeah it's mm. it just seems like water and, and being in, in the, by the sea and on the beach and in, in in the ocean, synonymous with play, certainly for me. <laughs> well, well, we'd always see it that it releases, that it, it kind of helps you open up that childlike wonder. Like you go in yeah. and like scientifically, it's meant to release massive amounts of oxytocin, similar enough to cocaine, supposedly. Absolutely. And over time, potentially or possibly expand your baseline capacity for creativity or play or happiness. You know, supposedly these habits of cold water swimming for people who can do it or cold water therapy, how it's often called, you know. Absolutely. I, yeah, well, I, I'm a 100% a believer in that. <laughs> totally, yeah. totally, totally. Mm. I, and to the fact where I, like, I, I do, because um, even like the writing of the books, I was always drawn to, I, I needed to, okay, I was writing about water, but I, I needed to go to water uh, to get that kind of creative stimulation. So I often like, especially Ebb and Flow, it was mostly written in these short bursts on these like little small offshore islands, uh, <laughs> things I needed to be surrounded by water, but it definitely lends itself to that kind of creative thinking. Um, and I talk a bit about that in the book too, how it actually enhances our creative capacity um, and that power of play. 
Very cool. And Ebb and Flow people are getting most bookshops. And so Audible. You get, you get an Audible. I've started listening to an Audible. It's very good. Mm, yeah, brilliant. You read it too, which is, you get the nice Donegal lilt in there. <laughs> which is great. Thanks. Yeah, so well done. You're brilliant. You're great. I look forward to meeting you in person. Well done. Really admire your I work. know. I'm ever over, it's rare enough I'm over on the East Coast, to be fair, but I definitely, anywhere I go, I need to get in the water. So yeah, that would be wonderful to yeah. go for go for a dip someday. Or likewise, if you're over the West side. The West side, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thanks, Iski. You're great. Yeah. Thank you so much.